you're my second guest on the podcast. Oh, wow. What an honor. But I'm not sure how to start these off because when I interviewed Andrew, it sounded very sort of blunt and straight into it because I didn't <laughs> say like, and my guest is blah, like a radio show. Do you think I should do that? You'll you'll figure it out. You'll find what works. But but yeah, I I quite like the idea because I ended up dropping in an introduction that was at a completely different level than all the rest of it. Okay. Um, it sounded really jarring. It was it was quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing with audio for sure. There's no there's no visuals or or if you can't do an explosion on the screen to distract from the fact that the sound <laughs> changed or something. But but if you would like to start and say and starting now and then we can start the intro if you want to try it. Well, if I do that, I'm still going to leave what we just said in anyway. Yeah, I think but this is great practice, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right, so, okay. And action. Welcome to the second episode of Corner Gas Fan Corner's Jackass Cast. Now we have another special guest for you this week, and some of you may not know what her connection to Corner Gas is. Um, it's by marriage, actually. She's married to Lorne Cardinal, who plays uh, Davis on the show, and um, she's a very creative and I find inspirational human being, um, full of positivity and all sorts of amazing ideas and just a joy to talk to and my guest today is Monique Hertu hello hello <laughs> <laughs> and how are you today I'm doing quite well thank you got lots of questions because I, I've decided and I think most people would agree with me that you are probably the most talented person on the planet oh god you do everything or have done everything from stand-up you're a fantastic artist, writer, producer, director, and the list goes on. Thank you for thinking of me. <laughs> it's quite amazing the amount of work. I just wonder how you find the time to the amount of stuff you're doing at the moment, let alone what you've done previously. Seem to be always on the go, new projects. Ah, I I am curious about so much that it's almost a compulsion more than it is than orchestration. I think <laughs> that it's like, oh God, what have I signed myself up for again? And then I go, oh, that looks fun. Maybe I'll try one of those. There's there is some semblance of master plan in that. It's things that I'm interested in and that I, I can always find the connection between them that some people find me absolutely perplexing because they don't <laughs> understand why are you doing that and that? And even in my, you know, my visual art, you paint that and why are you painting that? And I'm like, because I want to, <laughs> because it's interesting to me and I want to try it. Often at points unexpectedly and unplanned, things will converge into something and I go, ooh, this is a project where I can use like 18 of the things that I've tried <laughs> before. And so that's quite exciting. And I seem to be having a year so far of that, that where that's happening too. So that's been kind of exciting. And also 
I realized some time ago, and I still need to continue to convince myself of this, that I need to do things before I feel ready. Because if I wait until I'm perfectly ready, I will never do anything. I just wouldn't. So I keep reaching and striving to do things that I'm interested in that fit some of the things that I've always wanted to do, even if it's like a little step toward it. And I just keep trying to, I don't know, I don't want to say pile them on. I keep trying to accumulate and go after the experiences and stuff that interests me as often as possible. The stuff that makes me go, ooh, like when you said ho hovercraft earlier. And I'm like, ooh, I want to <laughs> ride a hovercraft. Oh, I want to drive a hovercraft. You know? well, so. Actually, because we were talking about um, uh, where I live in Portsmouth, anyone listening. Um, I live in Portsmouth in England, and it's very close to the Isle of Wight, which is just across the water. And there's a hovercraft that can take you from one place to the other. Now, if you went on that hovercraft, being that you want to go on one, you'd get two trips very quickly because as soon as you get to the Isle of Wight, you want to come back again. <laughs> I know you've written a screenplay recently and we were talking about a book you've been reading that you felt was very cinematic. What, what was that? This was the book, the I Am Pilgrim. Yeah. Harry Hayes. Oh, okay, yeah. No, and he also wrote Road Warrior. Or wait, award-winning writer and producer of numerous movies and credits include Payback, Road Warrior, and Dead Calm. Mad so, Max. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> so I I saw the back of the book when I saw those as his credits. And I went, oh, I God, I have to read that. Those movies are fantastic. And then there's something I have to... I don't know whether I was already leaned towards the expectation of it being more cinematic, but it felt more cinematic to me when I was reading what he yeah. wrote. Yeah. Very strong imagery. You, I, I don't know. It just feels like he's a screenwriter. It's mm. because novel writing is just a different animal than screenwriting. It just is. Oh, sorry. I, I think it was a quote that he, was it his? He said that writing a screenplay is like swimming in a bathtub and writing a novel is like swimming in the ocean. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> it does, really, because I'm trying to write a screenplay as well at the moment. Yeah, you'd mentioned. Oh, God, it's hard work. I mean, it is. I, I don't have very broad knowledge of the technical side of it. Mm -hmm. and, ah, yeah, and so I can understand where it is. if you're writing a novel, it's easier just to write the description down. Whereas mm -hmm. uh, when I'm writing, trying to write this screenplay and you write, I said to a few people, how do you write an action scene? Uh, I mean, you can't write the whole thing because somebody's, you know, somebody's got to be intrigued in what you're writing. So if you suddenly write every detail of a like a fight scene, yeah. but it's, you have that image in your head, how you want it to be portrayed. Yeah, it's, you know, I... It's a, so talking about those things where things that I've experienced converge, what screenwriting has felt like so far, and please know that compared to your last guest, <laughs> I am not in the same category of experience and knowledge, but from my experience and the classes I've taken, like the UCLA screenwriting program and the books, the many books that I've read and reading a lot of screenplays. I have a huge collection that yeah. I keep 
acquiring, and I should be reading more of, but getting used to the nature of it. And what screenwriting feels like is like the conciseness that's required for a lot of stand-up comedy. You need to get to the point. And if you watch stand-up comedy, especially over here, there's a very short time limit where you're expected to get to the point, make us laugh. Mm. And one of the stand-ups that I love, if you ever get a chance, I believe he's over in the UK now, Pete Johansson, but he was talking about the the time that you're allowed, I believe in the UK, they showed that you'll wait up to 25 seconds for make us laugh. Over here, yeah. I think it's 12 seconds. Really? Like make us laugh now and there's no patience for it (laughs) but but the the essence of that feeling is the get to the thing don't don't like pan over to the vase and the something like there's because some of it will happen with the director it will happen with the editing but when you watch something that you like watching I think you just need to think how would you just not every minute detail but they walk into a room and they smack the they smack everything off the table that just that and then whatever's on the table that'll be the set deck you'll have the director deciding how the actor's going to add their piece into it so you kind of have to you you may not you're not going to describe like a a a beautiful tablecloth and a something or other but you don't go into the detail that you would with a novel where you're setting the visual, because in this case you have the opportunity to add. Yeah. That's why I'm getting confused. It's like, where do you stop? Especially me, because I have a habit of banging on, especially in an email and (laughs) go on and on and on. And it's a real uh, lesson to, to myself more than anything to try and edit that rubbish out. It just reminded me of something that I saw too in the UCLA program when we first started we were given samples of an amateur script and a pro script and just a few pages of it. Mm. And just to look at it visually, you know, when you look at the nature or you, you know what you're looking at by the nature of how jammed it, the amateur one is all black writing all. And the other one, the pro is a little line dialogue another line description dialogue like there's lots of white space and sparseness and movement so when you're used to reading scripts you see a different cadence in the writing you can just recognize it by looking just like you can with anything when if you were to for example knowing what it takes to write something and to print it out on the page that if you were to look at when you look at what went into writing something that's densely, the page is filled with dense. And I don't mean the nature of the intellect. I mean that literally you see the pages covered. And then you look at one where it's a little sentence, a little bit of dialogue, like when you're reading a book like that. You know when you open the pages and you go, oh my God, this looks like a lot of work. That's that's I think when you know that a script has gone too far into the and then they picked up (laughs) the kernel of the the glistening kernel of popcorn that hadn't pops laying on the floor beside the cat with a 18 whiskers and a 
<laughs> an expression of disdain, you know, that you can't, you can do that in a book, in a novel. But that's what I, I remembered seeing and going, wow, it was funny too, because I won't say who, but there was a screenwriter that has some experience, like some experience, and it's not Andrew, because I've never met Andrew before, but, but it, there was a screenwriter that I worked with that helped prepare me for getting into the UCLA, UCLA program. And they actually sort of took me more toward the amateur. They wanted me to fill the page with description. Wow. And I went, that doesn't seem like what I've seen reading all the scripts I've read. And so I put more in and thankfully I got into the program still. But the first thing we got was that here's an amateur, here's a pro. And I'm like, oh, made my script look more amateurish for my sample I sent in by adding in all this flourish of, and the trees and the verdant, you know, I don't think, yeah. I don't know if I use verdant, but you know, it, it went overboard. So yeah. even people that are in have different ideas sometimes, but their style too is totally not my style of, of genres that they work in too. So the pacing's different. The pacing's different for, you know, say, and it's not, it wasn't this, but I'm just thinking Anne of Green Gables or Rob Roy and the sweeping, yeah. like until you get into the action. And I, I like thrillers. I like right. thrillers and dark comedy. So the pacing's different. Uh huh. So. That's <laughs> a thriller? In a stretch. It's a comedy thriller mishmash I suppose um, it came about when I was in Vancouver and I was talking to uh, somebody from Corner Gas and we were talking about ideas we'd both had for screenplays and our ideas were very similar and when I came away and I went back to my hotel room I thought I might as well give it a go I think I'll yeah that's yeah. how great well, it part part of what you started to describe reminded me of parts of, say, like No Country for Old Men, that yes. one, you know, pieces like that. And those they're great stories. Yeah, I I would just encourage you to keep keep going with it, you know, yeah. and that's how they start. That's how all sorts of things they start as a seed of something or a little a little flit flit flitting of the because. Oh, I was talking to my mom the other day and she, she has these great, like, and she's really great in the children's genre, but um, she was going, Oh, and I think I want to write. Cause these things that I'm doing and I hear her cause she's very creative and she's hilarious. And she has, and we both like thrillers. I've got her to thank for my love of the, the creepiness, like on a steady diet of like horror films, inappropriate <laughs> comedy, comedy, and stuff that freaks me out a yeah. lot. And we're like, ooh, that was good. So I've got her to thank for that. And maybe for some sleepless nights yeah. as a child. Like watching an American werewolf in London when I was seven. Yes. I think. I, I did. We got so much in common. <laughs> I did that. Okay. I did Chainsaw no. Massacre is my one. Oh, I, yeah. Okay. Six. <laughs> And The Exorcist and Salem's yeah. Lot and all of these things. But but we were talking about things and I told her, I believe, I don't remember the name of the author, but the one who wrote the Twilight 
series, the Twilight movie. The oh, the woman she Stephanie had a Meyer. okay, yeah. So she, yeah. I I saw an interview that she just had a dream about sparkly skin vampires. That's where it started, and yeah. she just started writing. I believe at the time she was a homemaker with a few kids and she just started writing. So it doesn't mean that you have to be in the biz or you have to have a writing background or you have to be whatever ideas and then doing something with them and yes. even a little page a day. And it's easier to edit stuff down, but whether you want to have an outline or just start writing, start from where you're at and that not waiting for it to be perfect before you put it down on the page. Yes, exactly. And get started or on the canvas or whatever, you know. Yeah, I've always said, I've, I've always written since I was very small, mostly silly things and then the comedy and stand-up and stuff. But I could always do little things, small bits and sketches maybe at a push, but I could do beginnings. I can't do middles. Ends maybe. <laughs> and it's the middle bit that they say, well, how do you, and then do, do, how do you do this? How do you expand on it? And do you, how do you do the character development thing? And how do you, and story arcs for different people. And I, I've decided with this thing that I'm not going to bother with any of that because I think it's more important that I just finish it. And what will be, will be. And, I, and I'm concentrating on the jokes because that's what I'm good at. And I'll fill the rest and, out. And you learn along the way. And you know, when as you were talking about it, what I find is that even if the cinematography is not great or the, you know, the lighting or the, the sound, you can't really get away with bad sound. <laughs> but, but that if the story's good, you just need the story. It, it doesn't even need, like, okay, and again, remember, I'm probably not the person to listen to, so, but... But what engages me, what I keep finding all the time is it's about, is this an interesting story? And rather than worried about taking every single box about did this person go from good to bad and then this, or did they have this major, yes, it's critical. But if you know that if somebody just did and you filmed them doing the same thing every day, that would be boring probably, <laughs> but but if you have somebody take you somewhere on a journey with them on something that happens, whether it's over a day or whether it's over a few years that you just sort of think beginning, middle, end in the small, like if you can tell it in, in a few sentences what your story is about and then you just make sure that you try to build out from there, I think, because yeah. like a good joke, like the conciseness of what a good joke requires is the same thing that any story requires. You need to introduce it, like you said, good beginning, and then and then this stuff happened in between, and things went off the rails, and then they ended up over here. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't need to be good either, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I don't know. That that's my kind of approach. Yeah, I was just watching some of your stand up in preparation, and oh. <laughs> um, you're very good at, at the storytelling element, the 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 um, skydiving story. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it, again for anyone listening i'll put links to these videos in the on spotify oh god i got butterflies like i was just going on stage when you said that really? <gasps> yeah just as you said like i was going skydiving oh my god they're gonna see it <laughs> I, can, I cannot i can, I can no no it's totally fine it's been up there for years that show is 
the one with the red curtain in the background. Mm -hmm. That one was from 2010, I think. But I'm going to be getting back on the stand-up stage this year because it's been too long. Yeah. And we just, Lauren and I just wrote for the debaters again recently. So I just, the bug's always been there, but. The the way you construct your jokes, I'm I'm terrible for watching stand-ups and just trying to, you know, how have they done that? Why have they done that? Rather than sometimes I miss the joke because I'm too busy thinking. (laughs) (laughs) And and you know, with the stand-up thing, all of that just happened and I kind of just kept track of it in my head because something would occur. That's a lot of how my own stand-up happens. Writing for the debaters is different because we're given subjects that you have to debate. So I have to go do research and then I research until I find something and I'm like, are you kidding me that? And then I think of the thing around it. So the research leads me there, but that whole skydiving thing happened because I went out. And so I was single at the time in case Lauren listens to this later and goes, what the heck? So this was long before (laughs) I knew Lauren, I was doing paperwork and it was a beautiful day. And I'd thought of going skydiving for years and I looked up and it was summer day and I went, I'm going skydiving. So I just phoned my mom and I said, I'm on my way to do something and guess what it is. And she kind of was quiet and then she goes getting your hair done and I said in a way (laughs) (laughs) and then I go guess again and then she goes skydiving and she got it the second try and I went yeah and so I just told her I'm heading out and then I got there went by myself and I walk in and I swear to god every guy was the hottest guy I'd seen in a long time like I walked in and I'm going what is this? What did I walk into? And then the the set of officer and a gentleman or something or top gun point break or something, you know, all of these hot sort of surfer dudes that go skydiving. And I just went, what the, and the first one looks and then he goes, he goes here, put on this harness. And then he cinches it like he cinches it up. And I remember going, I'll just give you money for that. I'll just stand here and we're good. I don't, (laughs) I know some other ladies I can bring out and we'll probably stick some bills in your, your waistband. So all of this stuff, you you know, actually that I hadn't thought of that until now, but those kinds of things kept happening. And then, but this one, I didn't talk about. So after yeah, so he told me, he did tell me to get on my knees. He comes up behind me and I'm like, well, this is, you know, this is forward. Yeah. And I remember, <laughs> and then getting thrown out of the plane. But on the on the way before we go out the plane, there was a guy that was training to do all the videos that they try to sell you afterwards. Yeah. And so he was looking at me, the other guy's looking at me and the guy was jumping with, kept making jokes about how the shoot's not going to open. And I'm like, yeah. Ha 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 ha, hilarious. <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> and, and then the other guy's looking at me like one of those exuberant guys at the gym that spots people and goes, come on, are you, are you stoked? Are you stoked? And I just, I looked at him and I said, it's better than doing paperwork. Just really, because I was nervous and I get quiet. So later, after the whole skydiving experience, we go into the the building and they show my video and he looks at me. So are you stoked? Are you stoked? And I just looked and went, 
it's better than doing paperwork. And I turned away and I looked, I'm like, I guess they're not using that for the promo video. (laughs) I looked pissed off, but I was actually, I was terrified. I'm like, I'm jumping out of a freaking plane. Like, am I stoked? Do you know what? That would be that would be an awesome line in a film as well. You have somebody tap something, go kill a few people, and and they say, "Oh, why'd you do that?" Oh, because it's better than doing paperwork. (laughs) (laughs) It's just that paradox or that that thing of of all, and then it's just quiet and deadpan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but that whole skydiving bit, it just sort of happened and wrote itself. And I remember just these little like, oh, this is like. Being in one of those adult-sized baby snugglies, like the <laughs> drooling, the pooping myself, the flying out of a plane, like it is very much like being a baby. Just yeah. beginning of my life and the end of my life. Here we go. So I didn't sit down and totally craft it, but I do tweak things. But mm. sometimes, yeah, sometimes they they sort of write themselves or I'll say or think something. And I'm like, I'm writing that one down. Yeah. Is that why you're going back into it now? Because you, you've got a lot of things that have happened that you can use? or I never really wanted to leave totally, but a few things happened, one of which was a car accident. And so it took a toll, obviously, physically. And then mm-hmm. energy-wise, stand-up comedy, when you're doing it as a professional like as a profession which I was um that was you know probably 70 80 percent of my income came from being a touring stand-up comedian and then I was doing workshops and other things on other in other areas uh like I was doing some personal training uh, well not personal training but more health and wellness things for community health around BC and other areas training trainers and doing other stuff. But when you're doing stand up as a profession, it's like training for a marathon where you have to be out running all the time to be able to run on the day of you need to be doing it all the time and to work out material, you know, say a new bit that's maybe a minute, a minute or two, you need to try that bit on at least 10 different stages and situations to see if it works. So that kind of commitment to be at, on the top of your game requires a lot of you physically and mentally. And after the car accident, that took a big toll. And then something which was really unpleasant, um, there was a club owner who had been harassing me for quite some time. I'm sure I wasn't the only woman that was dealing with this. And then I got groped in the middle of comedy fest Mm -hmm. while I was in a room full of other comedians. And I just went, you know what, that amongst the past two years of this skeevy club owner and just other stuff, there's a lot of stand up still quite male dominated. So there's some things and none of it's new just because Me Too's out doesn't mean it wasn't happening for a hell of a long time before. I just got, you know what, with a car accident recovery and what it takes and wading into that shit, I just thought, you know what, this ain't a gauntlet I feel like running anymore right now. But when I can wield a crowbar again and hit back, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I'm, if I show up, I'm not showing up with a crowbar, but 
I never wanted to stop doing stand-up for any other reason except for those things. Um, it's always been in me before I was doing it, and it's still been in me all along. And it's always been a desire and intention for me to go back again. I just needed to be in a space where physically it didn't require as much because as, as you'd seen, Lauren and I live about an hour, I would say, one way out of Vancouver. And so to go in five days a week to do a five or 10 minute set that you're not getting paid for, yeah, you know, that, that would be about a, could be around a three to four hour commitment several times a week to go do something for free. And if I'm not able to handle the, the travel back and forth and then wading into Stand up. Can, there's some interesting characters around. It requires some energy, along with the performance aspect, and and then working on everything. It requires it requires a lot to be yeah. to be good at it. To want to to actually commit yourself to the craft requires a lot. And I don't like doing things half-assed. I so. can tell. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to get back and having written for the debaters like this iconic Canadian comedy show I'd been invited to perform last November but Lauren and I were too busy and I didn't want my first time back on stage to be on a huge national stage for the debaters and come back rusty too and with very little prep time because we were flying all over the place I wanted to make sure and so there's potential I don't know hopefully my last writing gig for them worked out well that I might be fighting back this year Um, but I just like the challenge of it 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 keeps me on my toes doing stand-up and as you as you you know then doing comedy it takes some doing it takes some chops it takes work and it's one of the most challenging things I've ever done before. And I like challenge. I yeah. like risk taking. I like, I like pushing the envelope. It was interesting earlier when you said that writing for between stand up and then writing a script and a novel, that it's not a bigger stretch to between stand up and a, and a script. I know you've got a, a project on the go at the moment and it's, looks like it so is it that script that's got you in because you're I've got to, I've written this all down is it <laughs> and I've got to find my notes I wrote everything so messy like a, a very good doctor for my horrendous handwriting <laughs> it's um so it's you so you're involved with the uh the Netflix Banff diversity of voices yes. did I get that right yes yay <laughs> yeah. um and I'm in the pitch program part so the script that you've been been working on so I had started it was just actually it was a the seed of an idea that I started in the UCLA program and and it was only um I wrote it last summer in around July August um I had the first six pages written and I had a what's called a step outline So I had my step outline and I had six pages in and there were all these programs that kept coming out that I wanted to apply for and the prerequisite often or the requirement was screenplay, this, that or a spec script and 
I just was tired of not having that there. And so in, I think I wrote it in about less than six weeks. So from six pages to finish script in about five and a half weeks or so, uh, I just just started doing it. And it's like, there's no excuse anymore, just do it. So I wrote it and then I used, uh, that was part of my application for the Women in the Director's Chair program, which I was also in earlier this year and highly competitive. So I was, I'd, I'd applied before for the program too. The woman who started it, Dr. Carol Whiteman, I had ran into her at the Leo's actually how many years ago was that when Lauren was in if I had wings we were there at the Leo's and ran into Carol and she said so when are you gonna get into directing when's your next and I just went "Ooh," and because I've been thinking of it so she started it and she's like you should apply and so I went I'm not ready and then I thought like I said before I'm not ready for it so I applied knowing I didn't have a lot. I didn't make it in the first time. The second time I saw the application or I saw the the uh, call for submissions and I looked and I went, oh no, my screenplay is not done. So I didn't apply, but I thought that's it. I'm finishing my screenplay. So I started to write it and then I saw they extended the deadline and I was about five days from being done. And I went, oh, <laughs> so I applied knowing that I didn't have a finished screenplay, that they wanted one. And I thought, well, I wrote in my application, I'm 90% done my screenplay, and I will have it done. I thought by the time the adjudicators look, my screenplay will be done. If they want it, I will have it done. And I did have it done. But I submitted my full application minus the screenplay and put Here's my synopsis and my screenplay is 90% done. And I made it to a restricted shortlist. So the eight got in and then they offered me restricted shortlist. And I'm like, I'm close. <laughs> next time it's happening, I then applied for the next one that came up and I got in. So third, third time was a charm in that case. And then while I was in that Women in the Director's Chair program, which was taking place during the Vancouver International Women in Film Festival, I got, I'll tell you how I found out about Netflix, Banff. I went with Lauren to one of the Corner Gas animated voice records. I was sitting there with one of the writers that wrote one of the scripts, and she told me, we were just chatting about stuff and talking about Andrew Carr as well, because yeah. we're both writers. And so I'm like, I still haven't met Andrew and I'm um, looking forward to it and got to meet him last night. So when I met him, I told him about Meredith and how I owe her a big thank you. At that voice recording, she said to me, oh, by the way, have you heard about the Netflix map diversity of voices initiative? And I said, yeah, actually I did. Cause we had friends that got in last year and she goes, yeah, I think the call's out right now. And I went, oh, okay. So I went home that day and I looked and the deadline was like a couple of days away. And I looked at it and I went, got that, got that screenplay check. Now I can say check, you know, and so I threw together, I nose to the grindstone and having applied for lots of other things, 
you know, you kind of have stuff that you can pull from for your letters, your bio, your other stuff once when you start tailoring it. And I thought, what the hell? The worst they can say is no, right? You can't you can't get a yes without risking the no. And I got I halfway through the women in the director's chair, day th- three or something, I got home and I see the Banff email come in and I'm going, oh God, I can't look. And then <laughs> I open it and I go, what? You have been selected as one of 25 finalists for the pitch program. So I read on and then later found out the this year's Diversity Voices Initiative, Netflix BAMP Diversity Voices Initiative, they received almost 500 applications. Then they pick 100, and then out of the 100, 25 are specially selected for the pitch program. So, and we get special meetings and training. The 25 of us get a mentor as well. I got assigned Sherry Elwood, did you look up some of her? Yes, I did. And it's a bit spooky, actually. Uh, yesterday, I started watching Lucifer, yeah. which is produced and written. That was a bit odd because uh, consider- have you ever watched it? Oh, yeah. I love that yeah. show. That's, That's really- before I knew of Sherry's, like, sort of, yeah, found out who she she was behind the scenes because I had just enjoyed the shows. But well, in, in, obviously, in, anyone who hasn't seen it, they the main character is the devil and he can will people to tell him things their, their deepest desires and then today i look up sherry's work and we and we're talking about her and i'm starting to think this is a bit spooky i know <laughs> <laughs> somebody has willed me to this conversation it's, yeah uh, <laughs> and just that that from her the the one that she created call me fits with Drace, jason Priestley, i believe i read so i haven't talked to sherry so i read this somewhere as well when i saw who i had been assigned and so i started to look her up and then i'm going oh my god this is yeah. she is in such a, a an incredible pocket of things of exactly what i would dream of doing and I want to work toward becoming a showrunner she screenwrites she writes for tv she does dark edgy stuff she does stuff like she adapted Steve Martin's uh, or I think it was LA oh my god LA story so if you look just google Sherry a bit and see all the stuff she's been doing but through Jerry Bruckheimer was looking through and saw Call Me Fitz and said, I want to talk to her. And I believe he signed her for a blind development deal from that. So that's for Jerry Bruckheimer's behind Lucifer. And he's behind Armageddon and Pirates of the Caribbean. (laughs) Wow, no end of massive hits. The list is huge. I know. So you can imagine my excitement when I got paired with Sherry and looking at her credits and her background and and then just talking to her. Fantastic. It was just, you know, when you just click with somebody and the way that they approach things, how she talks about creativity, it so fits me. And my thing is, I don't want to create like somebody else. I don't want to, you know, yes, you can make big bucks going to work for somebody else or do something like somebody else, but I want to create my own thing. I want to do my own. And when 
I've also had a lot of people that will, especially in film and TV, even in the UCLA program, other people around me will go, ooh, that's disturbing. Essentially, I should rein it back in. You're freaking me out. Remind me to never get you mad. And then that <laughs> that imagination, what the hell is wrong with you? And I'm like, I know it's great, isn't it? There's a lot of people that will be too disturbed or, or oh, no, you should beige or vanilla that up some more. Not Sherry. Sherry's like, that's good. Like, and I, I've always been like, I want to lean into it. I want to like, does that make you uncomfortable? Does yeah. that? How about, can I just tip my toe over? <laughs> I love that. Do you get that a lot though from people? I, I get it with my jokes a lot. Like in my script, I've, I've written a joke. I'll try and remember it and tell it, see what your reaction is. Because most people have gone, what? They find the money and they're just trying to decide whether to give it to the authorities or not. And the main character's best mate, he says, possession is nine-tenths of the law. It's also nine-tenths of an exorcist exam. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I tell people that and I think I love that joke nobody else no you're the first person to laugh at it everyone else goes, I like the exorcist so I mean a lot <laughs> <laughs> so the exorcist that might sound weird I was gonna go it's never far from my mind but it actually isn't just like silence of the lambs isn't like yeah. silence of the lambs is like one of my top my mom and I are quoting stuff from those all the time so possession in that capacity <laughs> that is right in my mind a lot of the time but that's the thing that's hard is some people if they're not placed or ready to go places I don't know I don't yeah. I, I have had jokes before though that I just I so loved and they just never went anywhere and I still laugh at them too so I don't yeah. know can be workshopping them a little more or, I don't know it made me laugh yeah, exactly. And Andrew and I, when we were talking about similar things, like, do you keep them in or have you got to let them go? In some instances, you have. You just got to, like, for the to condense things, what you got to, can't be precious and you got to go. And it's mm -hmm. similar with this joke. Is it, shall I that, shall I get it rid of that? It? That kill your darlings thing yes. that you've heard. Yeah. yeah. You just, you, you got to. Because, like, for Lauren and I, when we're writing for the debaters, we're coming up and like throwing stuff back and forth. And then when you get the, he says, or, or I say something to him and you get the, Oh, <laughs> yeah. okay. So that one's not going in. And, one's but when we make each other laugh, then we go, okay, that's like, you know, when somebody can't help or you read it and you go, yeah, but we have a lot of those ones that we just like misfire, <laughs> like, yeah. like packing up the old, musket <laughs> that one didn't uh the old comedy musket didn't didn't fire on that one so it needs <laughs> i missed yeah so that that's uh yeah it's humbling yes. and that that reminds me of what i like about going back into the stand-up is if you're prepared to be humbled then it might be free for you but i i think i told you this before when you were here but i <laughs> When I meet people or people that know me that didn't know that I did stand up and they, I have people go, well, you're not funny. 
Like you're, and I, and I just, I just kind of shrug and I'm like, all right. Like, like the, the saying in stand up is, is can you be funny at nine thirty? Yeah. You know, and it's like I can, like, you know, get up in front of a group of strangers and make them laugh. Yeah. I can do that. But people that don't understand the craft as well and think that it's easy because when you see people that are really good at it, like you watch Brent and it just seems like he's just rolling off. Just it is not easy. And so when the people that are sort of, I don't know what the dismissive and like, oh, I'm hilarious. You should see me with my friends. And they kind of dismiss me like, oh, you're just some chick. What do you know? And I go, wow, you know what? You, I bet you would do awesome. You've never tried it before, but you're, you would do really great. You know what? I'm going to introduce you to the <laughs> owner of the club or this guy that does this night. You're going to kick ass. And then I, I kind of like <laughs> snicker inwardly to myself and I'm like, yeah. and then watch, I have been there on an occasion like that with somebody who had this arrogance thinking, Oh, I'm awesome with my buddies. And then I get them up on stage, get them up on stage or watch somebody get them up there. And then they just tank and you see the deer in the headlights and you're like, ha see, like you're that. not but just for somebody that doesn't have respect or, or at least a bit of depth of pay attention, you know, yeah. this isn't, but that's, that's a, a I think a, a testament to when it's done well, stand up looks seamless. And to me, it's fascinating to watch that and to go, how do people do that? And then want to try to do it myself. That's why I, like I say, I'm forever watching. It's like when I watch Brent, he does a fine line in acting out. I'm trying to think of other examples of people who do it. Billy Connolly does it a little bit. Like to to, to emphasise the joke, he'll do a bit of acting or miming. And his mm-hmm. face is very expressive. And his, it's his eyebrows that do it. That <laughs> me with and he has the pause and the look. And he, he his eyebrow will go up and it just just the pause but that even that pause has got to be a certain length of time oh yeah you can't you can't let it hang you can't you know the other thing i found as well when people talk to me when i used to do it they'd say or do you think you're funny and my answer to that is no no i don't think i'm funny i just like trying i think you have to earn your wings there are certain people in this world like brent or you can name millions of people uh, bill hicks George Carlin, whoever you want, they they are they can stand up and say yes, I am funny because they they've got the certificate, they've got the proof, and they've worked <laughs> hard at it. Somebody comes to me who's only been doing it for three years or however long it was I was doing it, and they are you funny? You think you're funny? No, I don't. I genuinely don't. I like to think that I can try, and if somebody else thinks the same way as me, then great. I don't know whether that's right or wrong, but. <laughs> I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I mean, the thing that strikes me, I think when people go, oh my God, I could never do, like when they go, I could never, some of the people that do have that sort of reverence or fear or respect for for stand up and they go, oh, I could never do that. Oh my God. And yet I find so many people so funny all the time, stand up and otherwise. And a lot of people that don't think they're funny, but are hilarious. I find you really hilarious. And 
I, yeah. but I think everybody has funny in them, mm-hmm. but it's also like things like drawing. If, if it's never, some people, if they don't ever try to refine it further, they might not get their timing down and stuff. But I think we all have our own flavors of funny. It doesn't mean everyone's going to be stage ready, you know, performance yeah. ready for things. But I do think people have more capacity than they realize. And that's also what stops them from doing a lot of things and not pursuing it because they're also not willing to chance not being good at something. Yeah. If you're willing to get up and do something and not do it, like there's a saying, no one become, can become great without first becoming good. And that people expect to be able to just walk in and be good at something right off the bat is not always the most realistic, but yeah. But I, but I think if someone were to ask me if I think I'm funny, and I'm like, sometimes I think yeah. I'm hilarious. <laughs> other times, not so much. So I think it, the capacity is there. I think the potential for yeah. it's there. And can I be funny at nine thirty? Most of the time. So when I said earlier, but but that saying, I like it because it really encapsulates. Because get up in front of a stranger is not that, oh, hey, remember that time? Uh Yeah, remember? And that guy looked at here uh like that. And like, (laughs) you can't go up on stage and do that. You can. You will burn. You'll go down in flames. They Mm. they will. People will give you the first time sort of, oh, good. They're doing it for the first time. Let's applaud. Second time, make me laugh now. Like, there's no... (laughs) There's not a lot of, oh, it's your second time. You should be better at this by now. You know, like it's not, there's not a lot of space and forgiveness. You know, it's, but I I like that. I like, I, one of my, my favorite shows happened in a little coffee shop in an atrium, brightly lit. The week before that, I had done stand up with some of my, my friends. We did a show for a dry grad fundraiser. So parents were getting drunk out of their heads, drinking all the booze, so there'd be none left for their kids to get drunk on when they graduated graduated from high school. <laughs> so we had, but it, it was a fantastic night. I had two or 300 people in the palm of my hands. I could do no wrong at the end of it. They walk up and they go, you're hilarious. We loved it. And like, thank you. And so that is, you know, how hard is it to walk away feeling good when you have a night like that? You know, people love you. They laughed at every spot. They even laughed extra, you know, and go, okay, wait. A week later, I did the exact same set in a little atrium coffee shop. This is material that I do like lots and it does well. But there's those anomalies sometimes. And so this was one of them. There were more comedians than audience. I did the same set that's killed like a week before. I was having, I felt like I had decent energy. I felt good. And I don't even believe I got a smirk. I don't think I got a smirk. (laughs) And in the midst of this, I actually started to get the giggles because it was so ludicrously bad that I got this I I started to go oh my god this is horrible and 
started to laugh going, this is so bad, it's awesome. And so I was looking at my friend who was, I don't know if she'd already gone up or not, but I was looking at her and I'm like, so I think it might be almost time to put this hot set to bed. And she's <laughs> laughing and then I'm like, you know, ended on a high note, right people? And nothing, like crickets. And so uh. I could barely get off stage and I was almost snorting like with laughter and I got off stage and that to this day is up there as one of my top like two or three shows that I've ever done because yeah. I got the joke while it was happening on me and I got off stage of what should have been one of the most terrible shows and I didn't want to throw myself in front of a bus. I actually thought that was awesome. <laughs> you know, I don't know how to explain it, but I mean, that that's probably not the goal in general and for most stand-up comedians, but yeah. for growth, for introspection as a human being, I can't have my whole well-being on whether or not I only get laughs. Yeah. You know, yeah. can, can I go in and have a terrible night in a fog steamed up atrium with people staring at me like I have a third arm growing out of my head <laughs> and not want to like crawl away in shame yeah I could do that turns out yeah it, you have to go through those uh, horrific shows and her you know horrific periods in in your career to be able to to spot the good and the bad because if it was if everyone laughed all the time you think well, what, well you've got to start thinking what did i do wrong and the, yeah and the, and the thing is is way more often than not i do well but then you still have to try your bits out and they don't always do well so we do the thing called the shit sandwich you know where you do your material <laughs> You do your good one, and then you do your, yeah. here's a new one, I hope you like it. Okay, you don't, I'm going to work on that. And then you do your new one again so that you don't lose them. But, yeah. but building that first even five minutes takes some gumption, and a lot of people will never get through that first five and yeah. to get, get through the other side. But but yeah, to risk, to risk the failure and to going down. Of course, they want to do well, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, one of my 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 most memorable show was for a few reasons, and I I have never I haven't told this story to many people until I came over and I told everybody. I just, <laughs> I, just I can't remember whether I told you or not. Um, it ends up with me having an argument with Spider Man's dad. As oh, maybe I don't know. I can't remember, but basically, my crowning glory was a uh, uh, an open mic at the comedy store in London, which is like the, the that's the tip of the top. That is. Oh yeah. I got booked for it. Um, no pay, as you'd expect, on an open mic. Had five minutes to do, and everything about it went wrong, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. The MC was taller than me, and he set the mic up for himself. And when I got onto stage. I couldn't get the mic back down, so the mic was straight in front of my face. Nobody could oh, see. Oh, great! <laughs> I couldn't. I was essentially at the time I was a student. It was one of the reasons I gave up because I just couldn't. 
afford the bills anymore having to travel backwards and forwards to london and doing sets and then do university work at the same time it just couldn't be done so essentially i was, I, I was used to working a student crowd and i was doing student material and all the professional comedians said to me you were good enough to keep people listening but you weren't good enough to make them laugh which i understand because i i obviously got got the material was fairly solid but it was for a different audience. Yeah, that that can be challenging. I've had that in corporates before, which is like, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't generally change it on the stage in the middle if you're newer too, because you don't have the repository to, to draw upon, so. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it was tough, but also I said, oh, that's right. I was sad, stood right at the front of the stage and they had a red light. They've got a red light. It said, if it flashes, get off because that means you're rubbish or you're running out of time and I had five minutes <laughs> I couldn't see the light I did 15 minutes <laughs> I got into a lot of trouble oh, <laughs> oh okay yeah that that can be a bit yeah. of a challenge oh, it's horrendous and then <laughs> this guy one of the professionals came and tore me a new one uh -oh. And, oh, everyone else was lovely and they were giving me advice to do this do that do the other and this guy I probably shouldn't mention his name. He said, you shouldn't be here. You should, this is a comedy store. Uh, and longer short story short is he stole some of my material. So I'm told I can't <gasps> prove it because I never saw it. Used it on television. Everyone that saw it told me it was him. And that chap is the father of the guy that plays Spider-Man now. Oh, <laughs> I, I do recall this now because I do think I talked about and I won't name it because I don't want to, but somebody that came to a club in Vancouver and did that and ended up on The Tonight Show. And really? they had taken some material from a Vancouver comic. And yeah, it's not nice. It's not nice. cool. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing about putting stuff out there in front of people is that people... There are people that will do that. And then there are other people. Like for me, I would abhor taking somebody else's. Like that shot and pissed on is what should happen to people. Like people that get <laughs> their reputation for stealing. I just have no respect for that kind of like, go make your own stuff. Why do you want to be somebody else? Do your own. Make your own. It's more interesting. That's right. But and but there are people that make livings, you know, trying to scam people, like those flipping emails. And there's that whole parallel thought thing as well, which is... That oh, that one's tricky. I've had that happen yeah. before. There was somebody I know, and actually she's a novelist now. I think she's written her 10th novel when I first started. Victoria Patterson Deneau. I think she's living in France now, but we started out in stand-up together and it's when those automated soap dispensers started happening places, the hand yeah. soap dispensers in the bathroom. And so I had, and then she ended up doing a bit that I had thought, and then she did it and I went, oh, I'd thought that too. And then she yeah. ended up doing it later. I mean, some of it's just things that, that will, will bring about thought for people or something's in the news and it's bound to happen. But, yeah. Yeah. you know, and then you, you hope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there we have it. That was my first hour of conversation with Monique. We went on for a little bit longer talking about other 
aspects of her career. And uh, I'll let you listen to that next week on episode three of Corner Gas Fan Corner's Jackass Cast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm not seeing you, obviously. Hey Ian, how's it going? Lorne, you're too late. Everyone's gone home. I told you to get earlier bus. <laughs>